I'm going to be reading uh, very quickly from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 13. I have a word of prayer before you're seated. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, he ascended. What does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above the heavens so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as teachers and pastors for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, for the building up of the body of Christ until we obtain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Heavenly Father, such a rich passage with so many wonderful things all about our Lord and what You are doing through us. And that I pray that as Tom teaches that You will open our hearts and eyes to see it, to believe it, and Father, to uh, be moved by Your Spirit to walk out of here living this life. Help us, Father. Thank You for the witness this morning, the testimony of Your saving grace. For it's in Your Son we know it came. Good morning. A couple of years ago, I had a handful of gift cards that had been languishing on my dresser that I hadn't spent. Of course, they were not Amazon or Harbor Freight or Home Depot cards. But I got online and I went to this this website that that buys back gift cards. The, and they give you cash for them. And so I plugged in the names, the cards, and the amounts, and I very quickly learned that if you try to receive value from the card without using it for the purpose for which it was created, that value drops off dramatically. You're getting sometimes pennies on the dollar. I know this, there's a lot of holes in this analogy, but, <laughs> but the, it struck me, the principle struck me as I was reading this amazing passage that when it comes to the gifts that God gives to us, uh, it's possible for us to spend those gifts even on things that seem to be good. But if we don't spend them on the things for which God created them and intended them and gave them, His value received through these vessels drops off dramatically. Now, He's going he's to secure what He intends. He's going to make happen what he intends, but we want to be cooperative. We want to be in on it in terms of being useful vessels. And so we have to pay attention to his purpose for the gifts that he gives. We often fail to make the connection between purpose and value, especially when it comes to a gift. We have a sort of a no-strings-attached mentality that says, well, if it's a gift, I get to spend it however I want to. But the reality is that the greatest gifts that we will ever receive in our earthly lives will be from the hand of God. And unless we joyfully let God tell us how to spend them, we're going to miss out on great usefulness and great blessing that comes from acting as faithful dependent, submissive agents of the living God. 
So at the big picture level, that's actually kind of what this passage is about. It's about rightly valuing the gifts that God has given to us in Christ because we clearly understand the purpose for which they were given. If we make that connection well, then we'll spend them well. And God will get great bang for the buck through these once lost sinners that He saved to do His work on earth. Last week we looked at Paul's powerful exhortation in the first six verses of chapter 4 of Ephesians. And I'll tell you right now that this passage, verses 7 to 13, is not an exhortation. Paul's going to come back to, to exhortation mode in the next passage, verses 14 to 16. But this passage actually takes us back to our calling. It takes us back to the supply line for godliness. This passage is about whose we are and what we have been given in Christ. And once again, I praise God that it's no accident that the, the whole tenor and theme of the worship this morning was very much tied to what we're looking at here. And I want to also point out that, that the fact that this passage is about our calling rather than our commission does not mean in any way that it's not practical. In fact, if we actually pay attention to this, and if we, if we are steeped in this, if this is the way we think about living and acting and speaking, we'll find that this is eminently practical, that this actually fills our life with plenty to do. Uh, it actually also dramatically changes our attitude about the church and about our place in the church. Now, the first verse and the last verse of this passage both speak of the measure of something. Verse 7 speaks of the measure of Christ's gift. And verse 13 speaks of the measure of the stature that belongs to the fullness of Christ. The word measure means pretty much what it sounds like. It has to do with determining the extent of something or the value or the, the worth of something. In this passage, it applies to measuring the value of the gifts of grace that God has given to us in Christ. And where Paul is going with this is he's going to talk about spiritual gifts. But he starts at a broader level. And he just talks about the gifts of grace that God has given to us. And for the rest of the message, I'm going to mostly change the word measure to the word weightiness. Weightiness. And if you will, just think of, think of a gift of pure gold. And the way that you know how valuable that gift in fact is, is you have to weigh it. You have to know the measure of it. In verse 7, Paul says that the weightiness of the grace that was given to each one of us is the same as the weightiness of Christ's gift. Singular. Not gifts, but gift. He's going to talk later in the passage about the various spiritual gifts that God gives to us as individual believers for the building up of the whole body. But here he just talks about one gift. And that gift is the standard of measure for the value of all gifts that God gives to us. And I believe he's talking about the same gift that he mentioned in chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, when he said, For by grace you have been saved through faith, 
And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. This morning in the worship, there was some discussion about 2 Corinthians 9. In 2 Corinthians 9.15, and I know my brother Don mentioned this one, Paul says, thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. And the passage is all about financial gifts that the the body of Christ is gathering up to send to the persecuted saints in Jerusalem. But but he ends by saying, thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. Singular. When Paul talks in those terms, I believe he's talking about our by grace, through faith, salvation in its entirety. He's looking at it as a whole. That's the gift that's, that's Christ's gift that is the standard of measure for all the gifts that God gives to us. That's the weightiness by which we know the value of all that comes from the hand of God. See, he's saying that when God hands out His grace gifts to each of His redeemed children, that's the language that He uses, to each one of us, <laughs> that the value of that grace gift matches up with the value of our salvation. Of the big gift. Of the whole gift. God doesn't He doesn't give piecemeal. He just lavishes outrageous wealth upon us. And that's in every aspect of our Christian life. We we tend to th- I tend to think of His spiritual gifts given to me as something kind of meager. And Paul's saying, no, no, you're, you're not getting it. It's Miraculous. It's miraculous. It's powerful. It's the same boundless, extravagant standard of measure by which He redeemed us in the first place. Because that's how God does things. Every part of God's saving work in you is a miracle of God. And that includes the spiritual gift or gifts that He has bestowed specifically upon you as an individual member of the body of Christ. Now what Paul says here in verse 7 about the gift of God's grace given to you is sounds an awful lot like what he said in chapter 3 about the grace gift that God gave to him. If you look at chapter 3, verses 6-8, through eight, you'll see that Paul, he starts by talking about the stewardship of ministry of the Gospel to the Gentiles that God had handed to him. And then he talks about the grace that caused him to have that ministry. And then he talks again about grace, and then he talks again about ministry. It's actually a chiasm, if you know what that is. He goes from A to B to B to A. And and what you see when you look at that, what you realize very quickly is the grace was given for the sake of the ministry. The purpose of the grace is the ministry of Paul. God was as purposeful in giving His grace to us in the form of the works of the Spirit in our individual lives, He was as purposeful about giving that grace to us as He was in giving the grace to Paul to bring the Gospel to the Gentiles. We've all received grace in order to be ministers of grace. And if you think that Paul was some sort of super-Christian if you think that there's no possible way that God would ever do through you the kinds of things that He accomplished through Paul, Paul is saying, 
you've got it wrong. You've got it wrong. And he says in 3.8, to me, Paul, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. Uh, he's contrasting his, <laughs> I love this from, from the worship, his nothingness with God's everythingness. I know that's not a word, but you, you get what I'm talking about. Yeah, it should be. I love that. It should be. We'll, we'll make it a word. So that's how he evaluates or assesses the weightiness of the grace given to him. And he's saying it's the same weightiness. The grace he gave to you is the same here in chapter four. You with me? That sort of, it sort of makes sense. Okay. For the remainder of this passage, Paul's going to focus on God's purpose for giving spiritual gifts to every member of the body. And in order to understand what he teaches us about that purpose, we first have to work our way through a uh, passage that has made many a Bible scholar scratch his head. <laughs> and that's Ephesians 4, verses 8 through 10. In verse 8, Paul quotes from one verse of a particular psalm of King David. The psalm is Psalm 68, and the verse is verse 18. I want to read verses 17 through 19 of that passage, and what you'll see highlighted up here is the parallel. You'll see Paul's excerpt from that psalm in Ephesians 4, and then you'll see where he got that in Psalm 68. I'm reading Psalm 68, verses 17 to 19. The chariots of God are myriads, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them at Sinai. Remember that little part. In holiness. You have ascended on high. You have led captive your captives. You have received gifts among men. Even among the rebellious also, that the Lord God may dwell there. Blessed be the Lord who daily bears our burden, the God who is our salvation. Selah. Now Jewish tradition before Paul's day and during Paul's day unanimously taught that that psalm was talking about Moses. And that conclusion makes perfect sense because of the reference in that passage to Sinai, Mount Sinai. The way the Jews understood this psalm is that when it said, you led captive your captives, it was referring to the Exodus in which Moses led the Jews out of their 400 years of slavery in Egypt to be servants of God. There's an outstanding book in the library called Echoes of Exodus in which, in which the, the writer traces the Exodus themes all the way through Scripture. And it's, it's quite amazing. Uh, I believe the Jews were right in this understanding. They also believe that, that the verse, when it talks about you ascended, it's speaking of Moses ascending Mount Sinai to receive the law of God while the Jews were rebelling in the camp at the base of the mountain, putting all the gold together that God had given them as the spoils of Egypt without them ever wielding a weapon, and making a, an idol out of it and calling it Yahweh. Right? So they were in rebellion. Moses receives the law. 
Now, why does Paul apply that psalm to Jesus instead of to Moses? Well, that's actually, that part's not hard to resolve. Because if you study, if you study the motifs and the prophecies in the Old Testament, you'll find that very often they have a, a short-term fulfillment and they have a long-term fulfillment. And the short-term fulfillment is sort of partial and the long-term fulfillment is perfect. And by the way, it's always in Christ. And in this case, I believe that, that when the Jews saw this as speaking of Moses, they were right. But when Paul applies it here to Jesus, he's also right. He's talking about the long-term fulfillment. With me? Makes sense? Okay, you'll see that all the time in the New Testament uh, handling of Old Testament motifs and prophecies. Now the real head-scratcher here is that all of the most reliable ancient texts of this passage, the Hebrew texts, say you received gifts among men. Paul says he gave gifts to men. Again, the, the Jews understood this as Moses going up the mountain, ascending and receiving the gifts of the laws and ordinances of Old Testament law, the Mosaic law, and then what happened, well, we'll talk in a second about what happened after that, but Paul knew all that. Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees, schooled under Gamaliel. He knew exactly, he knew as much about this as the high priest did. He knew what the Jews taught about this. And so when he said he gave gifts to men, it wasn't a slip up. At this point, Bob would say, so what gives? That's a pun. Another issue here has to do with uh, what Paul says about Christ ascending and descending. The psalm says, when he ascended on high, he led captive captives. I love that whole idea. You know, he's, he's freeing the captives of Israel from slavery in Egypt to be captives of, of the living God, to be bondservants of the living God. So he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, uh, captive, and Paul interprets the meaning of that statement for us in verses 9 and 10 of Ephesians 4. He says, now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. I agree with Peter O'Brien, and I highly, again, highly recommend this book. It will be unavailable in the library till I finish this series unless Ron has another copy. <laughs> but it's, it's really, really good. Um, and I agree with O'Brien that the phrase the lower parts of the earth here means the lower parts, comma, the earth. It means, see, there's the heavens and then there's the lower parts, the earth. I don't believe this is a reference to Christ going down to Hades between the, the crucifixion and the resurrection. And I, and I understand, you know, there's more to be said about that from Peter. But I, I don't think that's what's going on here. And it's not a big deal if you disagree with me, but I, I believe what, what, uh, Paul is saying is it actually kind of plays right into what he said in chapter one about the ascension. You know, he, he was talking about that Christ, he was, the very power that raised Christ from the dead and seated Him in the heavenlies at the right hand of God above all authority and dominion and power, every name that is named in this age and in the age to come, He's saying, that's the power that belongs to you. And now He's saying, He's saying Jesus descended to earth and He 
He accomplished our salvation and then He ascended back to heaven and He gave gifts to men. Now I know if I've lost to try to try to stay with me just a little longer on this because I think it's really cool. I believe the Moses connection actually explains why Paul switches things up here. Why he says he gave gifts to men. When Moses ascended Mount Sinai, he received gifts among men. In other words, among men, Moses is the guy who went up the mountain, received gifts. And what were the gifts? It was the, the law and the commandments of God. And why did he receive them? To give them to Israel. He received gifts from God in order to give them to God's people. The giving happened when Moses descended after ascending. But in Christ's perfect fulfillment of the psalm, Christ is the giver. Christ is the giver. And the giving happened when He ascended back from earth to heaven. And when He did, He gave gifts to men. And guys, if you've ever studied Paul's treatment, his juxtaposition of the law and the Spirit, I think there's a whole lot of power to what's going on here. Moses gave the law. Jesus gave the Spirit. And with the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit. Jesus ascended to His Father and He gave gifts to men. In John chapters 14 and 16, Jesus is emphatic about the fact that He had to return to His Father in order for the Helper to come. In order for the Spirit to be given. He ascended and He gave gifts to men. When the Spirit came upon the disciples at Pentecost and when He indwells every single believer from salvation day forward, He gives gifts of grace to each one of us. Gifts of the Spirit. Why does He do that? For what purpose did Christ give spiritual gifts to every individual believer? Well, back in Ephesians 3, verses 17-19, to Paul prayed that God would, by the powerful working of His uh, Spirit in each believer's inner man, that God would cause us to comprehend and to know the love of God which surpasses knowledge. And then he told us the purpose for us to know those things. He told us the goal or the end point of us coming to know these things. He said, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. He's talking about individual believers because he says, you together with all the saints, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. And we're going to see that filling up thing happening a lot here. Watch how Paul builds in chapter 4 on that beautiful purpose of God to fill us and everything else with Himself. By the way, this goes to the everything-nothing thing. You know how God becomes everything in our lives? I mean, how, how that's realized by us? He chases everything else out. He fills us up until the only thing that's left is Him. Alright. Chapter 4, verse 1, the exhortation. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Verses 2-3, to what that worthy walk is. Lovingly guarding the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And then verses 4 through 6, what it is that we guard. The unity that we guard. Paul teaches us a new math. He says one times seven is one. 
There is one body, one spirit, just as you were also called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, and then get this, who is over all and through all and in all. Does that sound like maybe like filling up? See, the end point of all that miraculous oneness is that God fills everything. Then verse 7, the gift of grace given to each member of the body. Then verses 8-10 through 10 that we just looked at, that unusual passage. And the point of that is that in His ascension, Christ gave gifts to men and the purpose for which Christ descended and ascended and gave gifts to men is what? Verse 10, that He might fill all things. That He might fill all things. Beloved, that's the ultimate goal of all of this filling that God is doing. That He might fill everything in His creation. But then Paul circles back in verses 11-13 to and he talks about this theme of gifts that he introduced in verse 7 the spiritual gifts that God by grace gives to each one of us. And he concludes that declaration about spiritual gifts in verse 13 by giving us another goal, another purpose that God is bringing about. And I believe this is like the intermediate purpose. I'll I'll put this together in just a second. But that is until we all, not each one anymore, but until we all together attain to the unity of the faith, to the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, one mature man, to the measure of the stature, the weightiness of the stature that belongs to the fullness, the fullness of Christ. So again, we're being filled up with Christ, not just individually, but as a church. God is filling His church with Christ. See, Ephesians is a dentist's paradise. There's more fillings here than you'll ever find in one place anywhere else. These are way better. Now here's the progression that I want you to see. This is how God fills everything with Christ. He starts with the individual believer. He gives you and me, the Holy Spirit, to fill us with Himself. He gives spiritual gifts to every believer to fill His church with Himself. And He fills His church with Himself in order to fill everything with Himself. His whole creation. There's a book by Greg Beale, a couple of them, but the small version is the one I read, of course. And it it talks about God through His church filling all of creation with His temple, His dwelling place in the midst of mankind. And His dwelling place on earth. See, God is filling up His creation through His church. Now, just look at this for a minute, and as you do, see if you can register this little analogy. When I was a pool guy back in seminary, I had this one pool on a hill in Bent Tree. It was an amazing property. And at the, toward the top of the hill was a fountain. And the fountain cascaded over into a spa, a jacuzzi. And the jacuzzi cascaded over into a great big swimming pool. And if you turn the pumps off for a while, because of gravity and and altitude differences, the, the fountain and the spa would sort, sort of drain down, right? And then you'd turn the pump back on and what would happen? Well, the fountain would fill up and it would overflow into the spa. And then the spa would fill up 
and it would overflow into the pool. And as I was kind of pondering this passage this week, I thought, oh, that's pretty cool. A little picture in my mind that the fountain is the individual believer and God fills that believer with Himself and then He overflows and He fills the church. And He fills up the church with Himself and that overflows and He fills the world. He fills the world. That is what God's up to in Ephesians 3 and 4. Filling everything with Himself. Habakkuk 2 verse 14 expresses the beautiful goal of God's miraculous work of filling. It says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God, the glory of Yahweh, as the waters cover the sea. Isn't that beautiful? Makes me wonder if Habakkuk wants clean saltwater pools or something. All right, let's talk about spending well. In light of all that we've seen, how do we spend God's gracious gifts to us well? What role does an individual Christian like you play in that glorious purpose of God to fill the whole earth with Himself? This is where spiritual gifts come in, beloved. Some of you have a gift of helps, some of giving, some have a gift of mercy, others the gift of exhortation, some administration, some have gifts of shepherding and teaching, some of evangelism, and there are others that I haven't mentioned here. I may not know what your gift is, but there are two things about your gift or your gifts that I know with rock-solid certainty. One is that you don't have all of the gifts. And the other is that the other people in the body of Christ don't all have your gifts. And there's a really good reason for that. That is the divine genius of God. And that means that spending your gifts well is about spending them on the body of Christ. And a lot of Christians don't like that. A lot of Christians bristle at that and they say, no, my task individually is to be using my gifts in the world. I'm not saying that that is not something that is to be done. I'm saying God's priority system here is that we spend our gifts on the body first. And I believe that that, that, could, be, that could be demonstrated very compellingly from many Scriptures. But here's what I want you to think about. There is no part of our experience as the children of God in which our differences are so indispensable to our oneness. Our commission to seek and save the lost and to make disciples of Christ from every nation, to fill the earth with the knowledge of God, demands that we work together as one so that the church will be filled up with Christ. Not part of Christ, but all of Christ. Jesus Christ is the only human being who ever walked this earth who had all of the spiritual gifts. And that, and that means it's a good thing that He's the head of the body and not me. Right? God could have given every spiritual gift and He could have assigned every kind of ministry to every individual Christian. But what would that do 
to the unity of the body of Christ. What would the world see when they looked at Christians? They'd just see a bunch of freestanding powerhouses. Super Christians. That's not the way this works, guys. Ray Stedman said this a long time ago, the continuing incarnation of Jesus Christ on earth today is us. It's the church. Okay? And so, the very top priority that God gives you and me as believers is to build us up so that we will be effective together at carrying on that commission to be Christ in the world. Does that make sense? In verses 11 and 12, Paul singles out four roles in the body of Christ. And they're tied to four specific gifts. He says, God gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Now, because of the specific wording in verse 11, the, the way the some as clauses are arranged, I, I take pastor and teacher to be one gift and one role. But if you disagree with me and think it's two gifts, that's fine. Perfectly fine. Now, why did Paul single out these four gifts? Well, I wouldn't be the first person to make the point that these four gifts all have to do with the ministry of the Word of God. Apostles. Prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Why would Paul go there? Why would that be significant? Well, for one thing, I can tell you he's setting the stage for the exhortation in the next passage, which is all about us speaking the truth of God's Word to one another to build up the body. Okay. But let's think about these four gifts. There's some ongoing, you know, never-ending discussion about about what apostles and prophets are. And by the way, I'll point out one other book, Thomas Schreiner. If you want a good primer on spiritual gifts, grab this one. This will be back in the library today uh, after I pull all my post-its out. (laughs) Good book, good book. Uh, Apostles and prophets. Well, I'm not going to try to get into the controversy about whether those two gifts still are given. But here's here's what I do know. You go back to chapter 2, and Paul says the church was built on on those gifts. The church was built on the apostles and prophets. And why? Because the church's foundation is Christ. Christ is the cornerstone, and the Word of God is the foundation that that cornerstone gave to us. And the whole church is built upon the foundation of the Word of God given through the apostles and prophets. What I do know is that every word of the New Testament and of the Old Testament was given by men through whom the Holy Spirit used the gift of prophecy to reveal His Word. The Holy Spirit, He superintended these men and He took over their thoughts He didn't dictate it, but He used them to give us the Word of God. So, apostles and prophets, that's a big deal. The the ministry of the Word here is is central. Okay, what about um, pastors and teachers? Well, pastors and teachers take that Word which has been given, which is established, and they study and teach and preach and hopefully work hard 
at causing the body to, to wrestle with it, to think about it, to, to really dig into the Word of God. They exhort and rebuke and correct and encourage if they're faithful. Now, I think what's really intriguing is that Paul include, included evangelists here. Um, how often do you think of the gift of evangelists as being critical for the building up and edifying of the body rather than for adding to the body? And I think the reason that Paul puts that gift here is because evangelism, guys, is the work of every Christian. But there are some gifted individuals that God has given them the gift of evangelism and through them, God gives us both the model and the encouragement of a zeal for reaching the lost. There was a really great example of this, I think, just a few weeks ago when a group of our young people went went down to a place in Dallas and they, they took care packages that they had prepared for homeless people. And there were some folks in the mix that had that really had the gift of evangelism. And some of our young people got to team up with them and uh, they kind of saw how it was done. And they they saw the boldness, they saw the love, they saw the the fearlessness really that God tends to put into those who have this gift. And they were challenged. They, our young people were challenged. They're going to get to go on a missions trip uh, this uh, spring break. Mexico. You can pray the same kind of thing happens there. Alright. The work of service in verse 12 for which these word-centered gifts especially equip us, I believe is first and foremost service to each other in the body so that the body will do the work of service that is directed to the entire world. You and I, God, God builds each of us up through the ministry of the Word. You and I in turn build each other up by applying that Word, doing all that it teaches us to do, first in our dealings with one another, and then in our dealings with the world as we work together as one body to proclaim and show off Christ in the world. As we do what the Word instructs us to do, we put every gift to the work for the good of the church and our supply line for fulfilling our commission, our supply line is our calling. Whose we are and what we've been given, including the spiritual gifts that we've been given. I should also mention here that uh, Paul's again, Paul's focus on the equipping gifts I believe is setting the stage for where he's going to go next. All right, let's let's uh, wrap this up. You and I, you and I will never rightly value the miraculous gifts that God has given to us in Jesus Christ if we don't have his purpose for those gifts firmly in our minds and hearts. He gave you his gracious gifts by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, so that through you and through every other saint, we will live and serve as one new man together. And by that, He'll fill up His church with all of Christ. He'll put all the gifts together and what will happen is the church will have, will have all of Christ. And His purpose for filling His church with Himself is so that through his church, 
He will fill all of His creation with Himself. So how important is your spiritual gift for the work that God wants to do on this earth? Indispensable. doesn't mean God can't replace you if you're not cooperative. It means His intention is that that gift that He has given to you will be indispensable to the work that he, is, that he is doing through His church. I need your gifts and you need mine. I need Christ in you and you need Christ in me. How important are the gifts of all the other saints in the body of Christ to you? Indispensable. No matter how independent you were before God saved you, <laughs> When He did save you, through faith in Jesus Christ alone, He remade you to be interdependent with the people of God. You need their gifts and they need your gifts. And guys, if that's hard for you, if it's hard for you to be interdependent, that's tough. Get used to it. Because this is the way God gets things done. And so you can either clock out and be useless, or you can be interdependent. You can be in the battle with the people of God day by day. There's no other option for you participating in the work of God on earth. You don't get to do it as an independent agent. God has given each believer a miraculous outpouring of His grace. He has indwelled each of us with His Holy Spirit. He has done for every single Christian all of the things that we have looked at and celebrated in the first three chapters of this marvelous letter. And, and guys, that's a lot. It's outrageous grace. But our greatest wealth in Jesus Christ will never be seen or spent if we are not together in our daily lives as one new man in Jesus Christ. The unity of the body of Christ is preeminent on our priority list. It's preeminent. May we faithfully and continually and lovingly spend the gifts that God has so graciously given to you and to me. May we spend those gifts on His people so that we may together proclaim and show off Christ to this world until the whole earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Father, we ask that You would make us individually and as Your church value your gracious gifts to us rightly and spend them well. And we ask it in Jesus' precious and magnificent name. Amen.